Hey everyone, welcome back to the 200th episode of the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark the Liberty, and joining me today is... Corey, the almost 200-year-old pop-pop knockrainer? Close, close, I think. I don't know. I'll just have to check feel your that way to you, right? <laughs> you're what? You're, you're like 19, but I am. I must be like 350. Back in my day, <laughs> hacking was when you broke a stick. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, on today's episode, back in my day is when you wrote bad words on a calculator. <laughs> <laughs> Hacking. <laughs> on today's episode, we take a trip down memory lane and discuss a few of our favorites, uh, favorite of the 443's episodes over the past few years now. Now uh, we'll give some updates along the way, including some of our predictions reviews that didn't hit at the time that may have hit now. We'll do some Q&A as well, too. And again, please send in more Q&A if you ever have any. Uh, and we'll end with a couple of quick news updates just to round it all out. Uh, so with that, let's go ahead and hack our way in. Like a bad lumberjack. Hack, hack, hack. Get it? So it is our 200th episode now. Man. Time sure flies. Honestly, I remember... 200. Yeah. Uh, 100th episode really does just feel like yesterday. I probably should have come prepared and remembered when we started our very first one, but it was, what, like three years ago now, at least? Uh, Maybe more. We had, yeah, interviews back It has in, to be. It has to be more, right? There's only 56 days or 56 weeks, I think, in a year. Yeah. So I think it might be around four years plus. Man, that's crazy. Uh, but... You know, over the past 200 or I guess 199 episodes leading up till now, like we've covered a whole bunch of stuff. Like we've had some good interviews with different security experts out there, done a lot of uh, updates on the news and trying to break them down for any and all to understand and act on uh, a few interesting like topic specific ones. Like I remember our dark web episode done ones on zero trust. And so yeah, I Covered everything. We even uh, we even had a lot of topics of how Mark pronounces attacker groups wrong, <laughs> like okay. rebel Whatever, instead Telenet. of our evil. <laughs> 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 or how many episodes of those two hundred did we forget the the uh, actual words for an acronym? <laughs> I think yeah. those at least get into the the you'd need more than two hands. <laughs> I finally have CISA, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure and Security Agency. It's so secure Fantastic. you said it twice. Yeah, and that one took a while to get. Uh, but man, time sure does fly. Like, I mean, I still remember us pitching the idea of this podcast to our uh, director of communications. And obviously he was on board right away. But really, we went into it not really knowing how it would go about, like what we were getting into, I guess. Those first like few episodes were definitely like feeling out how to best do one of these. And uh like, I don't know. I feel like we're definitely in the groove now. Uh, it's Yeah, it's evolved. I've been re recognized at conferences and had people say, hey, I like the 443. Say hi to Ma Mark. And I've, I've had, had people, people call me, me and, uh... Pop Pop Corey. So thanks for that, Mark. <laughs> it's not just you now. I've had folks come up to me at conferences and say, say hi to Pop Pop Corey for me. So mission accomplished. <laughs> I guess we can end the podcast now. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, but like for this episode, we wanted to take a, a look back through time and talk about a few uh, previous episodes that are really our favorites and give a few updates on them. 
Uh, we'll go over some of our predictions recap episodes that we've done and give some updates on uh, where some of those predictions are now as well, too. Uh, and then we'll end with a couple of real quick news updates as well, too. So this one should be, oh, yeah, and some Q&A thrown in there as well. This is definitely going to be a uh, a bit of a longer one. And so for that sake, like, let's go ahead and get started. Um, seat first, bot, I to... Seatbelt on in for a long and comfortable ride. Exactly. I uh, <laughs> hope the folks that listen to us in their commute uh, are ready for a nice long commute. This Maybe this will be a to and from office episode. Yeah, save it for a customer visit when you have to drive an hour. Exactly. Uh, so starting first, like, let's go over a few of our, I feel like, favorite episodes from the last 199 ones that we've done. And I don't know about you, Corey, but I think the bulk of my favorites are almost always like our interviews that we have with security experts that are out there. Yeah, and I totally agree. We, we're so busy with lots of stuff. I mean, uh, among running the threat lab, we also run security at WatchGuard. But I, I can't I think we are doing a concentrated effort to try to reach out and get more interviews. It's always fantastic when we have those interviews for sure. Yeah. And so let's start with like one of the first ones that we actually had, which was back on episode 32. Uh, where we sat down with Roger Grimes to talk about uh, multi-factor authentication and different ways to attack it and different uh, security considerations in the MFA space. Yeah, uh, Roger so, is a f cool and, and well-renowned guy besides authentication. I mean, he's an author of what it has to be about 10 books now. Like if you look up on, on Amazon or Google, he's been in the industry a long time. I believe he works uh, with Before in some things. So knows a lot of Before people, including Kevin Mitnick. So I think in that uh, in that talk, we even uh, he referenced for some of the... Uh, the uh, multi-factor bypassing things we talked about. He even shared a video that Kevin made uh, showing how basically with web authentication, when you know, you're know you doing some sort of SAML-based or a lot of the time the web application just gets a yes or no to the authentication, the MFA. So if you do any sort of session hijacking, it actually bypasses MFA. So super interesting guy. But yeah, you should go into more about what we did, talked about. Yeah, so like our discussion in that episode was largely around like ways to break MFA. Like we had originally approached Roger to chat because he had posted a, uh, published an article on, I can't remember which publication, but basically a bunch of different ways to hack MFA or bypass MFA. And so we covered some of the, uh, the differences between like strong multi-factor. So using like app-based MFA versus the weaknesses of like text-based SMS MFA. Uh, we talked about a few different ways to bypass that. And man, I'll say it's only really exploded since then on a lot of these attack methods. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we we liked this this subject because we are huge staunch supporters of MFA. And by the way, I think there there's no perfect security. So there's always weaknesses and there, there could be new ways to bypass any MFA solution. But we also believe there's stronger ways than others to do MFA. Uh, for instance, when we talked about text-based versus some sort of more encrypted medium. So I think it was we really liked the fact of just taking head on, hey, you guys recommend MFA all the time, but how can it be defeated and how good is a product? Like, for instance, we used AuthPoint as an example. So I think it was great to show it. And I, to me, the web app one is the big is one of the biggest things. I mean, people just don't forget that it's not just MFA works well, but some implementations have these temporary authentication tokens like session cookies and other things that 
once you have the session, you may not need the full MFA to get by it. So very fascinating. And I loved Roger because not only did he share like uh, the different techniques around it, but he also shared practices and design things that companies that do make MFA or, or companies who are implementing MFA can do to kind of avoid some of the weaknesses. Yeah. And this episode was actually recorded way back in 2018. So it has been like four years since then. And I'd say there have been some evolutions. Like we've talked on the podcast a couple of years ago now about even marketplaces built entirely around uh, selling the, that those session cookies, basically, where now not only can you get the session cookie, you basically get a browser plugin if you're a, a, a patron of one of these marketplaces that lets you mirror not just the cookie, but the entire like fingerprint of the victim to get past a lot of contextual authentication or continuous authentication. And they even have a real time because the the one weakness for attackers with session cookies is one protection against this is making sure they expire within a timely matter. You know, I think there's some sites that go as far as 30 days, which is bad. But even if a site is expiring them, some of these session marketplaces, the whole point is, hey, we have malware on this victim that's getting up so it's not only about giving you the session cookie and all the fingerprints to mimic that victim, but being sure to update you with the latest as the actual victim real time is re-authenticating or if, if one of them expires. So the way it was attached to active malware on these victims' computers that were being sold on the marketplace, I found fascinating too. Yeah. And just in general for authentication, like I think we joked about it at the time about killing the password. The reality is like, there have been some pretty big strides in actually killing passwords and authentication. Like these days, you can delete your password entirely from your Microsoft account. I know Google, Apple, and so, uh, so forth are falling behind soon too. FIDO-based tokens are coming a long ways too. Um, but like one of the things that we always talk about is, you know, killing the password isn't necessarily more secure. In fact, some of the passwordless single-factor options, I'd argue, are even worse than using a password. Yeah, it's not the only step. We we like that passwordless solutions are coming out. And we like, I, I would argue that while Windows does now have the ability to go totally passwordless from an industry level, it's going to be a long time before people are actually using that in full because there's so many legacy things that still need it in different ways. But our main point is passwordless is great. It's a, a, fact, a type of factor we should we should pursue. One, because passwords are not the best. There's so many you know, user-based issues with them. But, but two, it's just convenient. Passwordless often involves biometrics or other things that take less user interaction. But the one thing Mark and I don't want the industry to do is to suffer the same mistake of single-factor solutions. Passwordless is a great type of factor. Biometrics is a great factor. FIDO2 tokens, you know, when you have even uh, hardware-based tokens associated, those are a really strong single factor. But so, you know, in the scheme of one single factor versus the other, a FIDO token is, is high on the list, but none of those single factors will ever be perfect. So if we pick only one of them, if we only say, I'm gonna go passwordless, but it's only this one passwordless method and nothing else, rather than still applying some multi-factor tokens to it, I think long-term we're making the same mistake we made with passwords. So hurrah for passwordless, you know, evolving and being more widely adopted, but passwordless should not mean no MFA. 
100%. It would be kind of fun, I think, to maybe check back in with Roger at some point here soon and see what his opinions are on uh, how this has all evolved in the last four or potentially five years by then. Absolutely. I'm sure he'd love to. And he does a lot of other topics, too. So we should definitely invite him back. Yeah. So moving on to the next episode I wanted to highlight. This one was honestly one of my favorites, just because despite me being massively squeamish about like all things like poking it. I mean, despite all the tattoos, I don't like needles. I don't like the idea of things injected into skin. Uh, what are you talking about? I, I thought you were the first one that was going to put a BCI brain computer interface in your brain. No, no, thank you. Um, <laughs> all it takes is chopping open your skull and putting a few wires. Not a big deal. <laughs> so on, uh, as we or as we're hinting here on episode 54, also about four years ago, we sat down with the uh, famed biohacker, Amal Grostra to talk about really just biohacking in general and where he thought that that space in cybersecurity slash technology merging with humans was going to go. And uh, man, that was a, a pretty fun episode. So Amal, uh, for those of you that aren't familiar with his work, uh, I'd say famed because he is one of the highly publicized uh, founders of Dangerous Things, the company that designs implants to go literally inside your body for various functions everything from just like a fun magnet or led light it's like a rfc or a rfid token that can help unlock doors or in the case of a mall he actually built a gun that unlocked based off of the rfid implant in his hand like a lot of really cool like literal cyborg advancements uh, that yeah. he's fueling by doing it on himself basically yeah, that's what I think is so fascinating. I'm not quite as squeamish as you about the idea, but I'm still at the point where like, I'm not going to put anything in my body just for the, the pushing the envelope part. But that's like part of his thing to help prove how this will become a thing. And I, I actually believe, you know, as much as it's cyberpunk sci-fi, I think technical body modification is going to be part of the future. And I'm not joking when I say brain-computer interface. There's companies like Neuralink that literally have cut open skulls of mice and monkeys to start experimenting with this. So seeing be someone honest, that's though, willing... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I The last thing I want... After the last like few months watching the meltdown, the last thing I want is Elon Musk having an implant in my brain. <laughs> yeah. That may not be the first one I choose either, if I even choose <laughs> any. And uh, let's not even get into the hacking potential when we do have such connected implants. But but I, I think what's fascinating about them all is the fact that, like you say, he's willing to experiment on, on himself to prove the point of this happening. And I think he is right on that things like this are happening. Yeah. And it's not even like like it's cool to point out, you know, look at this. I can unlock a gun with an implant in my hand. But there are like even more practical uses for this, like pretty soon after we had that interview. Like the FDA actually approved a continuous glucose monitor uh, that gets implanted within a, a diabetic adult's uh, body. So instead of having to do fingerprints a couple times a day or finger pricks a couple times a day, it just continuously lets you know how you're doing basically on your blood sugar levels. Um, that one hasn't had a big takeoff because people are still a little squeamish of implanting a giant thing that in this case even has an external component as well, too. Um, but like you can tell we're in the early stages, I feel like, of more and more hardware ending yeah, up inside Yeah, absolutely. Of and I mean, even before the glucose, the recent glucose one, I forget what they call them. They're more than just heart monitors. They're the Pace mini. Pacemakers. 
yeah, mini pacemakers and paddles. But Cheney famously had one, which literally it's an internal surgery. It's attached to your heart and it sends shocks to keep your, you know, your heart in rhythm. But literally it had a wireless. It doesn't use Wi-Fi, but it used one of similar to some of the things we were talking about with uh, a mall with RFID, NFC, some sort of near field communication for doctors to like put something up to your chest to talk with it. There was literally a hack that would allow someone that could at least get that wireless communication range could could send weird shocks to your heart and basically put it into a a rhythm. So Cheney famously had it removed because of the the hacking scare. So new stuff happening like the glucose monitor that we're seeing every day. But I think people don't realize we already have wireless embedded devices we've had in humans for a decade. To me, that's even scarier because I bet the design for them did not have security considerations the way we have today. My hope is that they're so dumb that they are unhackable and that there isn't a whole lot to actually <laughs> be able to do. Like, and we see that a lot. Like I used to do a lot of IoT hacking where, you know, you figure something connected to Wi-Fi, there's something to hook into. But in some cases, like, yeah, they are literally so like dumb being non like advanced that there's not much. That, that's why I made the difference with the heart one of the paddles versus a monitor. There's a lot of things that we probably will put in our body that just monitor things, monitor blood levels, monitor pulse, monitor heartbeat. And like you say, those are dumb and that if you hack it, you might be able to change the output so the people reads it gets false information, but you're not really going to do anything bad to it. But this thing that literally can shock your heart, <laughs> that's where they get scary. <laughs> Yeah. Or when this glucose monitor gets hooked up to like your insulin pump some years down the line, oh, yeah. that's when it could and stops, be an issue. Stops delivering the critical medication. Yeah. Uh, but like even biohacking starting to make the rounds in like Hollywood now, too. So there's a IFC film that's a sci fi movie coming out later this year called Vesper that looks kind of cool. It's all about this like post apocalyptic dystopian future where uh, people are having to biohack their way themselves in order to survive, basically. I don't know if you've seen the trailers for that, Corey, but I actually like I've got that thing bookmarked to watch later this September when it comes out. Um, But now that you've told me, I'm totally going to check it out. Yeah. On the flip side, I feel like biohacking as a term has also kind of lost some of its like cool hacker street cred, largely thanks to I'm going to lay the blame on Jack Dorsey. He had an article, I think, with Washington Post a few years back where he taught or just a few months back where he talked about his biohacking, which is basically just like wellness tips like oh i take ice baths and i do like intermittent fasting and stuff like that more like like, life life hacks than (laughs) technical hacks yeah that does not get the same cred in our our actual technical security community does it Uh, wake me up when like jack dorsey injects a bitcoin miner in his skull like he's probably prone to doing sometime (laughs) soon um but either way like that was a really cool interview and i would also like to check in with them all and see what his latest uh fun gadgets and stuff he's working are on now are uh, i did browse through before this episode uh dangerous things that his company's website <laughs> there's a lot of like some of the practical stuff like rfid uh implants and stuff but now i mentioned they are literally selling like an led you can inject into your skin if you want to like light up like a little jellyfish or something but man, yeah i feel I, like with the body uh, modification a lot of it might just be creative and artistic too speaking as at least like the old school body modification. I think that's as far (laughs) as I'm going to go, though. Gauges and Uh, tattoos. (laughs) The gauges are gone. Just the tattoos now. Um, 
So next episode I wanted to highlight was another uh, interview. This one was episode, what was it, 95, where we sat down with Kat Murdoch, a pretty renowned uh, penetration tester and just overall security expert. And this was back in, I think, April of 2020, like early April 2020, so right after the start of this pandemic that is still raging on two years later. Back then, there was a lot of like, like most businesses had quickly shifted to working remotely entirely instead of people in the office. There was a whole lot of just like, not really confusion, just like reaction of like, how the heck do we take care of this in this given point in time? And so through that episode, we chatted with her about uh, how to handle working remotely and just overall security guidance as well, too. Yeah, no, I love chatting with her for so many reasons. I mean, the first reason, I kind of wish I I didn't have to say this because it really shouldn't be a a topic, but I just love whenever we get to highlight uh, other genders, you know, whether it's it's this female or or other genders in information security. Uh, I I think uh, that kind of, uh, you know, diverse opinion and having more inclusivity in security is a very good thing. It's a good thing for security to get different viewpoints from folks with different experiences because we all learn and grow. So it should it should never be a focus, the, the gender of, a, uh, of, of any guest, but it's nice whenever we get the highlight ones that don't get enough voice and security. But one of the things I remember and related to what you said is like a lot of her expertise is pen testing. Like she's a deep, you know, she's someone that does audits and pen tests. And as we move to this remote workforce, that even changed pen testing, right? Because like you and I have done pen tests before, Mark, and if you're doing like this black box, less guided version, we know all the techniques to, to get public information, domain information, tie it to DNS records, figure out public IP space, and kind of find the organization behind a company. And typically that's how pen tests go. You focus on the organization, the offices, all their their public cloud and, and local offices. But, you know, I, I think Kat pointed out that, wow, overnight, 90% of the employees, all those desktops that used to be in the offices that used to maybe be related to the vulnerabilities you found, now we're all over the world in, in their own home networks and guest networks. So how do you change pen testing the organization where it's not just the known cloud and premise and colo places that you can find easily, but it's all these other computers that might be all over the place, but strongly associated with the organization. And theoretically, they could even have worse vulnerabilities because they're now computers that are outside what might have been a perimeter. So I just found it fascinating hearing her like it was the first time I thought about, you know, it's not just how we secure the remote offices or the remote worker that's changing, but it changes everything down to how you do a pen test when you know so much infrastructure is just randomly remote home offices. Yeah. And like some of the topics we pitched to her were about, you know, the perimeter and how historically we've focused a lot about securing that perimeter and really this big shift to remote work uh, during the pandemic, thanks to, you know, no one being able to come into the office for risk of getting everyone sick, really changed a lot of that. And I feel like a lot of that change uh, also was uh, covered by like just the overall adoption and um, advertisement of zero trust in general, too. And we've done episodes on a episode specifically on zero trust as well, where we went into all the the nuts and bolts about how this works and why it is my favorite Gartner buzzword. Yeah, 
You, you don't want that Tootsie Pop network that's hard on the outside, a hard shell on the outside, but soft and chewy in the middle, especially when some of your middle happens to be somehow coming outside the hard and chewy or the, the, the crunchy outside anyways. <laughs> exactly. Hopefully it's just a, a normal lollipop all the way down, which I feel like is what we're getting to. Like there's been good strides towards zero trust in just the past few years. It feels like like having this buzzword tied to it has definitely helped out a ton. Like it is, I think, one of the best things that have come out of Gartner in just the past like 10 years or so. Because, I mean, it's nothing groundbreaking. It is just the principle of least privilege that now has this word tied to it that really anyone can understand. Yeah, but I think the good thing about zero trust is it has a focus on the internal user. Uh, as you guys know, listening to our podcast, the, the principle of least privilege is something we follow, but mostly to the external world. We're really good at saying, I don't know you. I'm going to apply least privilege to you because I don't know you. We haven't been good as an industry traditionally saying... I know you, but I'm still going to apply least privilege to you because you don't need to have everything this company owns. You only need what you need to do your job. So I think the cool thing about, I, I think Gartner's right on the theme of zero trust is a theme that's true, whatever you call it, especially when applied internally. And in this case, I think Gartner even picked uh, a name and an acronym that's intuitive. I will say when you're praising Gartner, I always think about sassy which, by the way, has zero trust concepts like zero trust network access. Sassy, by the way, if you haven't heard us say it, secure access service edge. Oh, duh. That's a place. Yeah, of course. Everyone knows that. By the way, if, if you didn't know what secure access service edge was, what would you guess? I mean, I, I would think of like last mile routers. <laughs> really, Sassy is all about having a zero trust model that is controlled from one central point in this mobile, cloudy, remote world where we have infrastructure everywhere. it's We have one perimeter that is our Tootsie Pop office, but then we have a cloud perimeter and we have remote users, and they're all different places that require different security things. How do you have this one paradigm, this one security configuration that you can apply that gives that control in the right ways depending on where things are? Zero trust is tied to it. And that's a place to, to go against the zero trust term where in this case, their theme, the sassy theme is a big, important paradigm you guys definitely should adopt. But I don't think that they, could, they couldn't pick a worse acronym for that one, in my opinion. But zero trust is easy. Like anyone can hear that and like at least get starting on what it means. In it intuitively is understandable. And I think it's something I, as far as where we are with it as an industry, I think even the smallest business now realizes this is the paradigm they want. I do think it will take time for it to, to really be executed throughout all these organizations, but people have taken the steps. And I think not only is it intuitive, it's something that people are striving for now. And they don't have to be sassy to get it. <laughs> Maybe it does help. Maybe you'll get it faster if you're sassy. <laughs> I'm going to want to cut that out. No, nope, <laughs> that stays Leave in. It in. And it stays. here's where you can uh, move into the we'll predictions episode. Yeah. <laughs> um, so like other episodes that I thought were great, like we always do our cybersecurity predictions from the WatchGuard Threat Lab every year. Like that, those date back pre-podcast as well too. 
we used to do just like single one-off like webinar style recordings uh to i, I did videos and and we talk yep. about the 443 but we used to do predictions on a, a old podcast called radio free security still archive episodes out there but yeah we've we've done the predictions for I would say well over a decade, but I think only on our podcast uh, and, and more recently since 2016-ish. Yeah, and like since 2016, we've done, if Corey's count is correct, 53 individual predictions. Try and do like you know six to nine or so on any given year. Introduce them sometime late November for the upcoming year. Basically our way of trying to uh, test the waters and see like overall security trends and come up with some interesting like end goal of where that trend might end up in the next year and yeah how are they going to evolve and it, it's more actually to let you know uh, the, the actual trends are always already there the prediction is just taking it further but the point is to make sure that you prepare the defense for the known trend regardless of if the prediction hits or not and there's a decent chance you've seen our pretty heavily produced videos that we put out alongside them for delivering the actual predictions and if I you definitely are a, have a favorite. <laughs> I don't think you share it. <laughs> if you're a listener of the podcast, uh, you've probably seen our equally heavily produced or at least interesting predictions recap videos or at least episodes that we do on any given year where we grade ourselves on how well we did for the previous year's predictions. Corey's uh, sitting there jumping up and down and giggling because he still remembers me dying of hot sauce overdose on the hot wings episode or hot ones episode we did. I'm a Which, hot ones. I'm a hot sauce lover and a hot ones lover, so I've always wanted to do something like that. But you, it, I mean, back then at I've least you said sriracha was your your hot hot sauce, right? <laughs> sriracha and like aardvark sauce was about as hot I would get. I would get at any given time. I've I've done a little better now. I'll get spicy ramen at the ramen shop now. Oh, that's but. cool. Still, I don't think I could ever make it past. By the way, I, I brag three. now, but like a, a year or two years before we did that, sriracha was like my, I used to think sriracha was, I can't even feel sriracha now. It tastes like a sweet <laughs> sauce to me. I, I've acclimated. It's ketchup. I, I, uh, yeah, that's all due to hot ones, by the way. But yeah, uh, so you weren't the only one. I did go through the phase where uh, one in particular, uh, why can't I think of it? The bomb. <laughs> Uh, I remember the physiological reaction I had to that one the first time I had it. started so, hallucinating. <laughs> yeah, it, it was kind of fun seeing, <laughs> not in a mean way, but it's cool to see you survive. And you did good, by the way. I thought you did fantastic for hating doing it so much. I uh, don't know if I've sweat as much in a single day in my life, and that includes many trips to tropical locations. Um, but so, but I guess anyways. we should talk about the actual predictions, right? <laughs> yeah. So we usually like I'd say we tend to average like 50 to 60 percent any given year. Sometimes we've done a bit better. We've gotten like a solid C minus sometimes one or two years. There's one year in particular. I remember a low 70s, which I thought was a good year. But I think 50 to 60 is is about right. And this is on our accuracy. grading scale of pass, fail Wait, or meh, by the way. Can, can I add a caveat to that, which I think we'll talk about? We're yeah. 50 to 60 percent for the prediction hitting during that exact year we predicted. I, I think we'll talk about how actually some of the ones that we predicted that didn't hit in the year actually have since maybe changed. So I wonder if we if we take out the requirement of the prediction having to hit the exact year versus does it ever hit, we might go back and find that our accuracy is going up and up. I guess maybe you would we do say, the, uh, the five-year grade. 
Yeah, yeah. That's not a good thing, by the way. <laughs> so some of these things we're predicting we actually don't want to happen, but... Well, there were uh, four predictions over the last four years or so that I did want to highlight uh, that we had given ourselves either a fail or a meh for at the time. Meh being like, yeah, okay, kind of worked or at least not super interesting. Uh, that are that do have some updates. Uh, so one of our 2020 predictions was MFA becomes standard for mid-sized companies. And when it came time to grade this, we gave it a bit of a mix of a meh and a fail because it really, it at that time, had not felt that it had become standard. It wasn't as widely adopted as we had hoped it would have been. When it was adopted, it was just on like privileged accounts, potentially. And I feel like in just the last two years, we've made considerable progress as an industry on this one. That has definitely turned to win. I, I would say I would have even put it on fail for sure back then because, you know, even though we liked the prediction, it was pretty, it, it, we stated it as it's, it's really well adopted. Like it is the standard and it definitely wasn't. There were many people not doing it enough. But I think one of the things that's driven it the last few years, even just in the last yearish time frame, is because of increases in cybersecurity insurance costs to the insurer, probably because they were stupid to pay the ransomware and they lost a lot of money because of that and, and actually helped prove the criminal business model, which is why bad guys still do it insurers. Maybe you should do actuary tables before you do things like that. Corey showing uh, anyways, off his sassy advice. Sorry. I'm sorry. That, that by the way, was also a prediction. Uh, but <laughs> they now do things like uh, actually scan their clients before they agree to insure them. And one of the requirements is it's absolutely required on any remote access. You know, I, I think maybe they will insure you without it, but it will cost more. But it's one of their default questions. So even though it's not a governmental regulation uh, for them, uh, and by the way, there are government regulations we could talk about. But that, that I think that is really acting like a compliance factor and has forced a lot of companies for, I think, good to actually adopt more MFA. And you mentioned cyber insurance. I think one of our other predictions from like 2018 or 2019 was that it would become more widely adopted. And I feel like that is definitely uh, more true now than it was then also. It was a double prediction, and it's the one where I actually also stated I don't think they should pay ransom because it was, it would be widely adopted, but they would be a target because of it. Uh, all the increase in cyber extortion insurance would make insurers themselves a target. One, in that you could find a great victim pool. If you know they have insurance, they're going to pay because that was the strategy at the time. And that was also the prediction I was talking about, where during in that prediction, if you read the body, I thought them paying was a bad long-term strategy. And I feel like I'm I'm being validated in that. And their, their costs rose 25% over just one year. And I think it's heavily due to paying ransom. Yeah, 100%. Uh, another prediction I wanted to highlight was more recent. So one of our 2021 predictions, uh, so leading into last year, not this year, was booby traps, smart chargers lead to smart car hacks. And when we came time for grading, we gave it a bit of a meh. I'd say it was definitely more leaning towards a fail end of a meh. I don't know if we've still gotten to a point where a smart car charger has facilitated a hack of a vehicle itself, but we certainly have gotten a heck of a lot more research around hacking smart car chargers themselves. Um, yeah, I, I, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. You first. I, you definitely should share the research, but I, I think this specific thing is part of why we, this was a peanut butter and chocolate type uh, prediction, as I call them. 
meaning we didn't see evidence, direct evidence of it, it happening for sure, but we knew smart cars were a target and we also knew in mobile devices that charging was one of the vectors that you could attack a mobile phone. So we combined the two. And I think what you're getting at is, while it still may not be a complete win, there's been a number of events that show that charging platforms for these smart devices are definitely a target of research. Yeah, just in March of this year, uh, there was a, a vulnerability or attack style, I guess, that even got a fancy marketing name called Broken Wire. Uh, which is basically using wireless signals to interrupt the charging of a electric vehicle. Um, that's the big one that got a lot of news where, again, you're not hacking the car itself, but you can at least through a wireless signal, meaning effectively from anywhere, if you've got a strong enough antenna, you can stop a car from charging at least, uh, which is kind of interesting. There's also been numerous stories lately of people hacking these smart charging stations themselves, where you've probably seen they've got like those video screens on almost all of them. Uh, they hack them to display like adult material or lately they've been hacking them in Russia to display support of Ukraine as well, too. <laughs> so certainly more uh, uh, less high stakes than installing ransomware on your Tesla. But there's certainly a lot of attacks against these charging stations lately. And Absolutely. So and I think that was one of our points that charging is one of the avenues to get into different IoT devices that should be considered. And it was mostly due to the fact that it's not just charging. There's a data channel there. Uh, not as big a data channel as like a full file transfer USB phone, but a, a data channel nonetheless. Yep. So I, I don't think this one's done. I'm willing to bet this is a five to 10 year prediction that at some point will hit soon, especially as electric vehicles really start to take off. Like it seems like most US automakers are going like all in on electric vehicles these days. So plenty of more surface area means plenty of more folks focusing their attention on potentially hacking it too. I would even say electronic car, electric cars are just getting more and more popular too. So it's kind of like the Mac situation. People are like, they're not hackable until everyone started getting them and the researchers focus on them. So as you see more smart cars increase, it, it's just going to continue to grow that, that surface area you were talking about. 100%. Uh, next prediction I wanted to hit on was back from 2018 where we predicted a major vulnerability would topple a crypt a, a vulnerability would topple a major cryptocurrency. And we gave this one also a meh fail. And that again, leaning more towards fail, there wasn't any direct hack against like Ethereum, similar to the old like DAO hack that happened back in 2016 that really caused it to go down. I'd say since then, like especially in just the last couple of weeks, cryptocurrency in general has certainly plummeted, um, not necessarily because of any direct attacks, um, but there certainly have been a lot of attacks against like Ethereum and Ethereum adjacent applications that have resulted in massive losses of cryptocurrency, like hundreds of millions of dollars in some certain uh, circumstances. And there was at least uh, one, it's not really a hack against it, but there is arguably an attack that took place against a stable coin called US Terra where for those that aren't crypto bros out there or people like me that sit there watching crypto bros lose all their money, um, a stable coin is supposed to be a cryptocurrency that is pegged at its called uh, to be a one-to-one -one, uh, conversion to a US dollar. Basically, this coin is always worth one US dollar. The reason being, you can use it for making pur purchases without the wild fluctuations you see in like Bitcoin or Ethereum pricing. 
a few other uses as well too. Um, but there was actually a, a, so there isn't any direct evidence that it was a concerted attack by someone, um, but there was at least a, I'll call it an attack against Terra, where basically someone effectively shorted it and then dumped a bunch of money into it, causing it to lose its peg. So it went from one to one for a dollar down to maybe 90 cents for a dollar. And that was enough to scare people into selling off as well, which caused it to continue going down. Uh, this was a algorith algorithmic uh, stablecoin, meaning it had its smart contract tried to automatically react by dumping assets on the other end, which I think was like Bitcoin and Ethereum to keep that peg. And it basically caused it to just like go into a death spiral into oblivion, where now it's worth about like 12 cents. And its token uh, that it was tied to is worth fractions of a penny from its previous high of like $600 or something, a token. And that event, like I, this, that was the high level description of it. That event was enough to actually destabilize the value of Ethereum on its own pretty drastically. I think it went down like 10 to 20% because of that event basically shaking up everyone's feelings on stable coins in general. And I mean, now it's easy for us to sit up here and say, ah, look at cryptocurrency crashing like crazy right now. Uh, but there haven't been any like specific attacks that have caused one of them to go down. One of the risks we're seeing here, though, with the plummeting of cryptocurrency is in general, like as Ethereum goes down in value, you will have less people mining Ethereum because it's not profitable anymore to mine it. And when you have less people mining it, you're more open to something like a 51% attack, where if you can accumulate enough mining power on the network of Ethereum or similar coins, you basically you can rewrite history. And you, yeah. yeah, you can go back and do double spend attacks where you use the same money twice, rewrite the blockchain to make it look like you didn't pay for it. Like it does open it up to a lot more risks as these coins plummet in value. So I feel like we're probably- And I, I would ar argue even while it wasn't maybe one hack that caused things like, uh, my issue with cryptocurrency, and uh, by the way, the thing stablecoin was supposed to solve you're never you're never going to have a good currency that everyone uses if it's treated like stock. If if one the value fluctuates greatly every day, that's just hard to deal with as a currency. And two, if its value is so intrinsically t tied to how people feel, to your point of them starting to sell off, causing the unstable, causing it to be even more unstable. We accept, accept that for stock, but while I guess real currency can have that, you know, it drops value based on people's expectations, the currencies we choose to use as a whole are the ones that are stable, that don't change in value that often. You know, it's a few cents between different currencies every day. So I think one of the things that's adjusting people's expectation of cryptocurrency isn't just one hack, it's hacks not on like the Ethereum technology or Bitcoin, it's all the marketplaces and the wall there be besides what we talked about with Terra, there's been hundreds of different crypto providers, different third party, you know, supply chain people, whether it's wallets or, or uh, marketplaces where you can exchange. So many hacks have happened. It's again, it's not saying cryptocurrency isn't secure. It's all these extra third parties have some product that is broken. So I think when the general public keeps seeing that 
hey, I put all my money in this, but now suddenly it can disappear overnight and there's nothing Matt Damon can do to bring all back the <laughs> currency he's been, he's been pushing me to go buy on TV. You know, you have a one-two punch. One, your currency is too de- it's too reactive to people's expectations. And two, even the, if the, the blockchain itself is pretty secure, all these third parties aren't. And so, of course, the general public is going to fluctuate wildly in whether or not they trust it or not. Wait, so, are you saying the oversight of like a bank and the protection of the FDIC, they're not or worthless? The, or a government. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I hate regulation. I hate taxes. But you know what? The true thing is any virtual fiat, a fiat currency by definition means there's nothing really physical to back it. It's all based on trust. So you have to have some organization that the general public, the majority trusts enough. And I I, I get there's deep state people out there that think the government's bad. But I would argue no matter which political party over the past hundreds of years, the U.S. government has done a decent job of keeping the dollar a, a decent value. And that does have value, unfortunately. I would love to be libertarian and say, hey, let's make up our own system and no one else can choose but the people. But the truth is, I don't trust the general people. (laughs) There's a lot of people out there that are scammy. I would rather have a known entity act as some sort of trust method above all of this. So yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. And I I would say that even the, the toppling that has to do with expectation, could inadvertently be because of so many hacks we see in the realm of cryptocurrency in general. Yep, agreed. Uh, Last prediction I wanted to highlight was from 2019, and it was AI chatbots go rogue, where basically the prediction was uh, that cyber criminals would use chatbot technology paired with artificial intelligence in phishing attacks against folks. Uh, Similar to how, you know, as it stands right now, they probably send emails, they may even use vishing or text space. Now it's you've got a chatbot that is communicating with you trying to fish you out of something this was a fail yeah go ahead this was yeah this was a fail at the time to add a little more specificity i i imagine a scenario where maybe a legitimate site has a cross-site scripting flaw a fisher gets you to to hit a link that really goes to bank of america but there's a cross-site scripting flaw that allows them to pop up a fake Bank of America chatbot, and that chatbot would then be automated to fish credit. You, you know, you actually were at the real site of Bank of America, so everything there looked legit. But all the injection of the chatbot would be the fake place they're trying to ask you for information, as though they're a support rep. So that's how I imagine it, and that certainly didn't happen. This, by the way, was a hail mary prediction. This was one that no real evidence of anywhere. I just, I, I guess, uh, or us together, we we thought it just would be an interesting idea as we saw the increase in chatbots on just about every site nowadays. Yeah, well, it was a fail then. Like, even just recently in, man, it was last month, uh, there was publications about fake chatbots luring victims into giving up information, completing fraudulent transactions, opening malicious links, all of that. Yeah, the only thing that while it didn't perfectly fit my scenario, because I imagined the scenario where it was attached to a legit site and there had to be a web application, this instead was a classic phishing link. So you were always at a bad site, but they definitely maliciously used the chatbot as an additional social engineering tool to get information out of you. So I, I, I think if we were judging this, if it happened at the time, it would be enough to push it into the win, you know, at least a C win. Yep. 
So either way, like those were fun. I'm looking forward to the end of this year. I feel like some of our predictions were a bit ambitious, but we'll see where they end up. Cool, Mark. That was a great blast from the past talking about some of our episodes and predictions. But I want to turn, you know, the tables on you. Uh, as everyone knows, you're like the host of the 443, the main guy. I'm just your your old grumpy pop pop Corey sidekick. Uh, but after doing 200 episodes together, I thought it'd just be fun to ask some questions about how it's gone so far. So I'm going to take over hosting Reigns and, and you get to be Mr. Interviewee, although I guess I can pipe in too. So let's just start. What, what's been the most fun or the best part of this podcasting we've done for the past four or so years? Yeah. And I don't know. I feel like it's probably it feels really fake to say this, but I genuinely like like the interaction we get with folks outside the podcast, like the the people that have come up and said, hey, you know, I listen to you on the car ride to work and actually get a lot of valuable information out of it. Like it's it feels nice being validated that we're not just sitting here talking to the uh, blank void of the Internet and that people actually do find it useful to get caught up on the news through us versus doing their own trolling through the Internet. So. I don't know. I feel like that's my favorite part. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, if I I, I would put the, a little thing I would I request to our viewers to that one. But before I do, besides that part, which really might the best part of the podcast is if it builds a big enough community and we start to hear from you guys, because that is the interaction we crave and want. We don't just want it to be about us talking, but the more we can involve you in the, the conversation, the better. But I will have to say just one other thing is, I kind of have fun just shooting the crap with you about security markets. You know, we talk all day about security, but it's like in a business fashion. And when we're doing normal presentations, you know, we, we are talking about it professionally, which is fun and good. But I think you, me, our entire team, we're security nerds. We're passionate about it. And it's fun to kind of do what I consider the after hours Let's drop some of the business pretense and just be real and sarcastic and jokey about some of these things. And I think sometimes you have the best discussions and you get to actually, you know, the professional practical takeaways too when you're more real about it. So it's just been fun, you know, joking with security about you and, and joking about this stuff. My Little do our listeners know that uh, this coffee is actually just spiked with Baileys straight up. That's what I was going to say. I would love to do a... a <laughs> Uh, a beer and security type podcast. That'd be even more fun. I guess <laughs> we technically have to record that one after work, though. Mm -hmm. I will say, like, my vision for the best part of podcasting is that community. I love that when we've gone out live, we've occasionally heard from fans, but I would love to see us build a bigger community or or to hear from you guys more. You know, we have Twitter handles. Uh, you might notice we have some video now on some episodes and we might consider streaming. So my favorite part, like you, is when we get others involved, whether it's our own listener community or the interviews. So I hope for the next 200, we actually make that a new effort. To And that that requires you guys to pipe in, too. If you're listening in this, hey, shoot us some ideas. More importantly, if you, you have an idea you want to talk about. You know, even if you're not the renowned black hat speaker, uh, we have a lot of partners and audience members out there that could teach us about security. So we're happy to consider having you on the show, too. Yeah, 100 percent. 
So the next question I want to ask you, because now that you're this fancy well-known podcaster that everyone's like, can I have a picture with Mark, the 443 podcast host? I, I feel like, you know, the next generation of cybersecurity experts are going to come to people that they know of to ask questions. And one of the ones I, I think we've both seen at conferences, we go to Black Hat DEF CON a lot, is when we get like the students, you know, somebody in college studying cybersecurity, that they're really passionate about joining it. And they want to choose this career path. So do you have like, like what are your general tips to folks that come and ask you, how can I get into what the cool things you're doing, Mark? I, the biggest tip I always give is that cybersecurity is absolutely a passion based field. Like you can, you can complete a job and do well if you're just here to like make a buck and head home. But in order to be successful in cybersecurity, you have to be passionate because it's not easy. Like you have to stay up to date on trends that are evolving every single week, like whatever the latest vulnerability is, whatever the latest attack method is, whatever the latest system your IT organization just deployed is, whatever the latest thing your user just plugged into the network is like you have to be able to ingest and learn about all these different things in information technology and act on them and act on protecting them as well, too. Like it is absolutely passion based. If you've got that passion, you can absolutely succeed in it. Like I'm I don't keep it secret that I dropped out of college and I actually started in cybersecurity without a degree. I ended up going back and getting one just to make myself feel accomplished in that. But you don't necessarily need like education backing it up. You need the passion and the ability to go teach yourself about interesting things out there. One of the things I feel like helped me pretty early on uh, was just creating projects around security, like setting up a honey net to learn what attackers are doing against SSH and Telnet. Uh, which can then piggyback into doing your own research and IoT hacking along the way too. Like these little things that you can do outside of a professional environment can really help uh, you show value when you're trying to get your foot in the door in that first interview for an entry level position, I feel like. I think that is such an excellent point. And that was one of my my older tips to folks too is don't wait and try to find an organization to be part of. Contribute to the information security community now. I, I remember back in the day where lists like at one time it was bug track and then it changed the security focus before we had like the government or, or big organizations like a MITRE or whatever following CVE. The only way to learn about vulnerabilities was mailing lists. And an unknown person that never worked in security, but if you were passionate about it, you figured out a, a new attack technique, a vulnerability, you could just write up. I mean, it was pretty clear. If you read that mailing list, you knew, learned the standard for doing disclosure. You write up a disclosure thing or a white paper on a research project, and you share it publicly with the community. And while it's not attached to a job, like you say, or money, that's how people notice you. And so many people, I think, got their start and now are leading security experts by that. So definitely keep learning in college. There's lots of certs and things we could tell you to go out and get to, to get better. But don't be afraid to just participate in the conversation, whether it's on, you know, Reddit r slash cybersecurity, whether it's on some of the mailing lists. Uh, I, I think just interacting with people will get you more and more known and you'll be learning along the way as you talk to fellow experts. And to be clear, so it, I'm not saying a drop out of college. Uh, I, oh, no. <laughs> that is a path. Uh, that is definitely the hard mode way of doing it. I certainly Me wish neither. I was a little more astute of a student uh, and could have learned a lot in a shorter period of time versus the longer period of time it took. 
I will say, just to be in the boat with you, I, I dropped out of my comp sci degree too. I never finished that degree. Uh, I I think schooling is fantastic and you should uh, consider it. I don't know if I agree with you though, by the way. I think for-profit driven education hasn't necessarily given the right education to people. Uh, and uh, one of the things, one of the reasons I think there's so many either college drop you know non-college educated security experts or security experts that couldn't actually get into security until well after college is it's different the past five years but back when i was in college everything you needed for cybersecurity was not taught in the comp sci degree the level of effort they put for secure coding or it based security was so minimal you couldn't learn half the things you need for this uh, without more involved kind of hands-on back then. Since then, there's a lot more cybersecurity programs in colleges, so that has changed for the good, but I still think uh, there's a lot of additional places where you can learn more about cybersecurity. Yep, so keeping things moving along, uh, both of us agreed that we love podcasts that have interaction or interviews. Top guest host, if we could have anyone on the podcast, who do you fanboy about, uh, Mark? I like. I would love to still have Marcus Hutchins on here. I feel like so for those that aren't familiar yeah. with him, it's the uh, that I say kid. I think he and I are the same age. That helped stop the the WannaCry attack. That really got his name on the map. Unfortunately, also on the map of law enforcement who picked him up for some less above the board uh, activities he did yeah. as a kid. And honestly, he, he wrote to... some malware. He may not have used the malware, but he he wrote some more malicious uh, proof of concept type code or stuff that was really used at least by other people in the wild. Honestly, right? I feel like he has yeah a lot of a lot to contribute in terms of just general security guidance now. Like he is very much above the board working in malware analysis and security research. And it'd be cool to have a very technical individual on the show. So that would probably be my top one. How about you? I, I go through a lot, but being the old school guy, I, I think you, you probably know mine from every time we go to DEF CON and Black Hat and I, I point out all my pop pop favorites. But, you know, one of the big ones has always been HD Moore. I, I got the pleasure of going to a real Black Hat training, not just the briefings, but when he was actually doing Metasploit training and right after he just converted to Ruby. He's done so much for the information security community and, and done so much at a lot of companies. And he, by the way, is the technical, like, like Marcus. He could go super deep. Uh, why can't I think of them? Uh, the Cult of the Dead Cow, they have many members, but... You know, I grew up back when back orifice was one of the things and popping out a CD tray, pretending it's a Coke can uh, holder. Uh, anyways, uh, some of the payloads for malware weren't as criminally bad, but they were funny if you could pop out people's CD trays for them. So back, those back orifice guys, they've done so much. Uh, some of them went to the Shmoo group and did wireless hacking. So there's so many. I, we actually gave a list to some of our producers to reach out to. And I think without even thinking about it, it was a list of 40 some folks. So uh, while we're talking about folks, and I think I even brought this up, conferences are coming back. I mentioned DEF CON and Black Hat. Uh, do you have any highlights? Like it's finally a year where I think we might actually be able to return to a live conference. What are you looking forward to, Mark? I am looking forward to returning to a live conference just in general. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there's anything specific. Like I did see that Black Hat just posted a lot of their briefings. I think Def, Defcons are right around the corner too. 
I'm sure there's going to be a lot of great content, but I'm just in general looking forward to seeing human beings again because it has been far too long. Like I've done a few, uh, some of my, my work travels started back up to go um, do events with our various partners and customers. And that has been just fantastic being out there on a stage talking instead of, again, talking into the blank void of the internet on a webinar. Uh, but like, I, I feel like there is a lot to be gained from in-person presentations and chatting and just being able to like grab the speaker off the stage afterwards and chat with them on the ground for Ask a bit questions. on like, yeah, a little bit more. I'm just, I'm looking forward to that first and foremost. All, all the same. But for me, I think it's coming back to DEF CON because DEF CON has all of that. But DEF CON's the one where it's also just the community chatting with not just the people speaking, but knowing that every person in the audience, they are that passionate security. Like Black Hat is a cool conference too, but business people go there. It's a weekday, you get paid for it. If you're going to DEF CON on your weekend, you love security. And that means everyone around you does too. So I'm just looking forward to even conversations with the person in line for me waiting for the darn DEF CON badge to be released Thursday night or whatever. 100%. So 100%. I am very much looking you. forward to running our uh, CTF again in person. Like it's been fun doing it digitally, but the best part is definitely meeting up with people at the conference. Okay, we probably we still want to do a, a few more stories, uh, but let's end with just one final question. What's your greatest learning experience, I guess, security wise after 200 ex uh, episodes? Anything where you're like, oh, wow, this really is a big deal, whether it's an interview one or just something we came to the realization of ourselves. This is a hard one, right? I guess this I should have thought about one. it before. Biggest learning experience is going to be a pretty difficult one. Like, I think in general, uh, biggest thing that I have learned is just making sure you like keep your mind open to potential changes out there in the industry. Um, like, I feel like sometimes I've been set on, oh, this is there's no way in heck that MFA is ever going to be adopted beyond privileged accounts, because why would end users want to go through those additional hoops? But here we are now. It is being adopted and very much necessary. Like other areas, too, where I feel like um, like we've ta talked about, like in some SaaS applications, like maybe it's OK exposing things to the Internet if it's protected with MFA and, you know, strong encryption on the actual web connection. But the reality is like there's still zero day vulnerabilities that can get around that too. Like just being open to change and being open to be proven wrong as more information comes to light, I feel like is the biggest learning uh, that I've had in the past 200 episodes. How about that you? is a good one. I, I would think one of one of my favorite interviews is with Nina Jankowitz and she's written the book on misinformation and disinformation. And I love the technical side of security, but I'm starting to realize the psychological nature of social networking and technology, how technology can be used to asymmetrically, meaning small groups can greatly influence large numbers of people, not through really technical hacks, but just through disinformation and misinformation. So, you know, as someone that really always liked the technical side of hacking and really geeked out about zero day and stuff, and, and to be honest, like social engineers like Kevin Mignick, I was like, yeah, cool, but he's not a technical hacker who gives a crap. I now have changed. I, I, I feel like there's a lot you can do just using technology to propagate disinformation. Well, thanks for the great Q&A, Mark. Uh, let's go ahead and dive into the next subject. So 
ending this episode, uh, we wanted to chat about two recent news stories that came up that were just kind of interesting bits, uh, changes in the last couple of weeks. First one is, um, so last week, cybersecurity professionals discovered the latest evolution in double extortion ransomware. So double extortion being the not only are we going to encrypt all your stuff, but we're going to steal it too, and then try and blackmail you into paying the ransom uh, to prevent us from releasing it publicly. So historically, many of these double extortion models involve a like a dark web website, like uh, was it our evil's happy blog is where they would yeah. post theirs. Most of these similar ransomware providers have something similar on the dark web, but the black hat ransomware. Well, yeah, and I was going to say that is kind of where they publicly that that's that is where journalists learn about these hacks. And I think the purpose they serve for these underground authors is they actually want people besides the victim to know that the victim's being hacked because that's the they don't want to give up all the information yet, but they want. They want the press, frankly, to know there was a hack there because that's part of the pressure they're putting on the company to recover quickly, whether it's pay ransomware or whatever. So, but what's interesting is because it's on the dark web, it's an onion link. It's they're I feel like they're doing it publicly because they want the world to see, but they're doing it in a way that's very limited public, meaning, you know, it's just security people like us, very, very technical folks or journalists who've gotten used to understanding how to find onion links in some of these undergroundy places. So it's public, but semi-public because it's obfuscated on the, you know, the onion, the, the Tor network. And uh, yeah. It's not it's a little no, more like Google to search get, engine like, for it. Yeah. yeah. Like my mom's not going to stumble across it. She might hear about it in the news after it's been published by some uh, some press. But who found like, it. Yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, Black Cat, not Black Hat, but Black Cat ransomware uh, is historically. Yeah. OK. Uh, historically operated under a double extortion model. Um, they post about their victims on their dark web blog. Uh, they just started switching things up recently by not only doing that, but also registering a basically typo squatted domain. So the instead of a, their victim's normal website, their domain with a .xyz instead of .com. Uh, so they register that for their victims and then post the information about their attack and demands there. So basically this name and shame page, it includes like samples of the stolen employee and customer data, descriptions about the rest of the data, and really a threat to be proactive about negotiations or they will leak the rest of the information. Um, journalists me, stumbled across that, one that, of these. That, that, yeah. That's exactly what the happy blog was, but they're just, they're purposely doing it in a much more public manner that more people could find more easily, in, in yeah, my opinion. 100%. Uh, so the example that journalists found this time uh, showed employee data samples, including names, emails, date of birth, phone numbers, social security numbers, even sample data like scans of W-4s, drug screening forms, offer letters, identity card data, all of this on the normal old internet on basically if it were like, let's say WatchGuard, it would be watchguard.xyz instead of watchguard.com. And like you said, this makes sense for them to do it. Like this is yeah. one way to step up the pressure on trying to convince a company into uh, paying that ransom, even if they've successfully recovered from the actual encryption portion of it. If if the if the goal of these black hats is to have more of this company's both the press find it quicker and even more of this company's actual customers to maybe find it quicker, 
putting it on the public web with a a name that is attached to the company just makes it it's it's obvious they're they're literally saying hey whole world we want you to know this company's hacked and their reasoning for it is definitely that you know i think one of the successful reasons they're one of the reasons ransomware is so successful is the psychological pressure techniques between the timer and these continual evolutions do put pressure on businesses yeah 100 percent. and so like how do you defend against this because like with a normal ransomware attack we always just say have good backups and as long as you've tested them confirm they work and they don't get by ransomware you can recover but that's no longer good enough on its own now too so instead of that big swing over to the recovery side like we still need that whole protection side of it as well and part of that could be your normal controls of you know good uh, endpoint protection, but also good just DLP controls and monitoring for exfiltration to try and stop that attack before it's able to succeed. Yeah, for sure. Um, go ahead. Any other tips for you uh, want to throw in there? No, no, I, it's just greatly increasing. Backup is not, a, at this point, most ransomware is also exfiltrating data, which means it's a breach case, even if you can restore from it. And in that case, it's better just to do your best to try. I mean, it's always best to try to prevent it in the first place. But you, it, in this case, even a backup is probably not going to save you from the actual breach event. And you still may, you know, you may still lose the data or yeah, if you make the 100%. wrong decision pay someone anyways so next story i wanted to hit though uh last week interpol announced a coordinated global law enforcement effort that led to the arrest of 2,000 individuals and the seizure of 50 million dollars in illicit funds stolen from a variety of social engineering scams so basically this is the culmination of a two-month effort effort earlier this spring where international police raided 1,700 locations in 76 different countries. In some cases, uh, taking down fake um, kidnapping situations. Uh, they arrested folks involved with Ponzi schemes, but also just in general, those call center scam centers that call up and say, hey, your auto insurance is expired, buy more. While it's 76 countries, I think they said uh, with a focus, I think they said on uh, Eastern Asian countries uh, or what's it eastern asian countries so i i do believe india is a, a one of the big countries involved because they're known for a lot of call centers that are based with that have scams by the way not not a judgment against india it's just that is where a lot of these call centers exist and one of my takeaways from it was actually china as a country cooperated very heavily with western law enforcement in this like france and various and portugal i believe are other big players you don't often see china cooperating with western law enforcement so i thought that was a pretty good omen that maybe we'll get more action in the future too in similar call center style scams yeah i feel like china when it comes to things like government espionage or some of their uh, authoritarian governments desires to control and censor their internet we're not going to get them to change their position but where china does agree with the rest of the world is china's an economic power and they want to maintain the stability of their currency and the stability of the wealth of their people and these scams affect people all over the world you know when it's easy for anybody to steal wealth from your citizens that just is an economic thing. So it is nice to see at least for these economic type criminal cyber activity that every country is susceptible to, to, to 
despite what type of government system you have, that China is willing to step up. So a positive thing? <laughs> we'll see. Like, Hopefully at some point here soon we have solved or at least mitigated a lot of the issues with these uh, scam centers. So good news, good progress. Yeah. By the way, a fun talking point. This is not mentioned at all in the article. This is purely me uh, kind of making some conjecture. Uh, but just to share some of my YouTube intro, like I, I used to be a decent YouTuber and I, I watch a lot of YouTube. And I recently, Mark Rober, he's actually a, a, a ex-NASA engineer and he's uh, he has, I think, tens of millions of followers now in TV shows. But he's the guy that makes the porch pirate like glitter bomb boxes with cell phones. He engineered this really cool design where it pretends to be something on your porch. People who steal it then get caught out. Uh, so he's helped authorities find porch pirates. He recently did a video. I think it's like his second to last video uh, where he worked with some well-known scam call center YouTubers. Uh, there's a type of YouTube where people, you know, security experts and scam experts similar to us will sit there and purposely wait for these scammers, take calls and basically reverse a hack on them, get control of their computer and start to get basically grief them. And he partnered with a lot of them to target multiple call centers and got these glitter bombs plus extra stuff for, for the scam centers shipped to these uh, scam centers. It involved insiders. They actually found people, in this case, it was a lot of them in India, to become hired by the scam center to hire insiders because believe it or not, their physical security of letting people come in or out with US, they do a lot to not let their employees leak stuff because they know they're criminal liars. So it, was, it took actually an insider attack to get this whole thing going and in it, they gathered, and this, by the way, was just a few weeks ago, they gathered a ton of information that they shared with authorities all over the world. So again, this is just my conjecture, but I wonder if part of this whole Interpol thing involved, it, it seems like Mark Rober worked with a whole bunch of these scam caller YouTubers to gather over years, tons of information, names of the business owners. So it just seems like interesting timing for this coming out right after they publicly released all that information of these scam centers yeah that one was so, super cool i definitely recommend checking out the youtube video if you haven't it's it's pretty cool yeah and the scammers that mark mark rober's cool by himself but i actually i follow some of the people he worked with the the scam youtubers are always kind of it's, it's just redeeming seeing someone go after they're preying on old people like they're just stealing money from old trusting people it's so disgusting and the way they actually, like if someone doesn't questions, why am I giving you my banking information? They yell at them. They, they like, they treat these people so horribly. And to me, they're obvious criminals pretending to have a real job. 100%. So man, more of that, please. Hey everyone. Thank you again for listening to the 200th episode of the 443. Uh, we appreciate you sticking around this long. Uh, as always, if you have any questions, any suggestions for future episode topics, really anything you want to pitch our way, uh, please reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at XORRO underscore. Corey is at SecAdept. And the both of us are at hashtag the 443 podcast. I'll say a few of you have also weaseled out our 
email addresses at work as well, too. Please feel free to shoot an email to us if you aren't on the Twitterverse. Either way, though, thank you again for listening, and you will hear from us again next week. 201! No, we're done. That's it. It's a wrap. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha.